Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dishing with Digest. I'm Stephanie Sloan, Editorial Director, here with Mara Leminski, Senior Editor. Hi, everyone. So Mara, I almost had to check the calendar to see if we were still in February because there is so much story popping, you would think it was a sweeps month. So aside from Franco's shocking death playing out on screen on GH, which we will get to in a moment, there are so many other huge moments happening across the dial. On Days of Our Lives, Ben will be devastated to say the least when Sierra wakes up, thinks it's three years ago, thinks he's the necktie killer and has no memory of them ever being in love or together. So I spoke to Victoria Konefal, who returned to reprise Sierra for a few weeks, and she suggests that fans keep tissues handy because it's going to be a tearjerker. Now over at Bold and the Beautiful, after Finn discovers that old Vinny did indeed switch those paternity results of Steffi's baby, and that Finn is actually the father, he will race to track down Steffi, who is set to leave town, presumably to accommodate her portrayer, Jacqueline McInnes-Woods, maternity leave. Well, he's not the only fan in daytime dealing with a paternity potboiler. Uh, the matter of those DNA test results that arrived at GH before the show's doomed double wedding will also play into major drama for Finn, Chase, Gregory, and Jackie. And I can assure you just in general that even though we're coming off of two weeks of like nonstop action on GH for so many different characters, GH is not going to slow down as we get deeper into March. Well, that is good news. And let's, of course, not leave Young and Restless out of it. Uh, Devon is going to come clean with Amanda that he has had sex with Elena twice. Back to days, we're also going to see the Sarah Xander romance hit a snag thanks to Kyle Lauder's return as Rex. I spoke to Kyle, who said he was so grateful to get the call to come back because the pandemic marked the longest he has gone as an adult without working. And he really appreciated having somewhere to go, especially somewhere that he just has such a long history with. He did say he was a little bummed that he didn't have the chance to see like the co-stars beyond who he worked with because of COVID protocols. But he, it was funny, he said he and ex-wife Ariane Zucker, who plays Nicole, called out to each other from their respective dressing rooms. Um, but he was really hoping to reconnect with Jay Johnson, uh, who plays Philip, because he had not seen Jay in about 16 years. Uh, I would have loved to have seen like a Kyle J selfie make its way to Instagram. Uh, Maybe his next visit. Uh, Another return we can look forward to is Amanda Sutton reprising the role of GH's Brooke Lynn. So she has been away from Port Charles for quite a long time since she learned she was pregnant in the early days of the pandemic. And on the advice of her doctors, she stayed home from work. So for the new issue, um, I also had the pleasure of catching up with GH fave Emma Sams. Uh, Now, Emma was slated to return to GH last year, but the pandemic had other plans. So not only did traveling to the U.S. from the U.K., where she lives, become an issue, but so too did her health. Uh, Emma was diagnosed with COVID about a year ago and unfortunately has been suffering from long-haul COVID, where she continues to experience a range of debilitating symptoms, including shortness of breath and exhaustion. But she was in really good spirits when we spoke, and she told me a great story about shooting the really brief on-screen return of Holly uh, last year. Just a short scene to let the audience know that while Holly is being kept captive, she is very much alive. Uh, So she shot that in the guest room at her house, and her partner was standing outside the door. And when she opened the door after her, you know, doing her bit of yelling and screaming, 
she saw him standing there white as a sheet, totally upset, <laughs> which indicated to her that she had done a convincing job of playing her character's uh, distress. She told me that as soon as she is well, uh, GH's executive producer, Frank Valentini, has assured her that all she has to do is give him a heads up and they will write her back in. And she is really looking forward to that day, as am I. Um, in the meantime, Emma, who of course also starred as Fallon on Dynasty and the Colbys, has organized a totally star-studded virtual Dynasty reunion, which will stream online on March 20th. Linda Evans and Heather Locklear are just two of the uh, big names who will be joining her, and they have so many fun things planned, and it's all to raise money for long-haul COVID research, such an important cause. Mm -hmm. And tickets are available now at www.dynastyreunion.com. I mean, that sounds like it's going to be such a fun watch. I was a huge fan of Dynasty and the Colbys, and I also love Emma and anytime she plays Holly. Um, and I really hope that she doesn't experience these, you know, symptoms for a long time. That must be so difficult. Um, now, I mentioned that we're seeing the death of GH's Franco play out on air, and judging by the reaction this has gotten on social media, uh, fans are quite upset. And, you know, rightly so. I mean, I was super shocked when I heard it was coming. Uh, Franco and Liz are such a popular pair. And, you know, people just really have taken to Roger's portrayal of this character. Um, there is some good news on that front. However, this isn't the last time we will see of Roger Howarth in Port Charles, which is fantastic news for viewers and fans of his, of which there are many. Um, I'm curious to see where the turn of events leaves Liz. Uh, you know, I'm a big Becky Herbst fan. Uh, she's just so talented. And I feel this will give her some incredible material to play. Yes, I agree. You know, we actually named her as the biggest waste of talent in our 2020 Best and Worst issue. And it is something of a silver lining to me as a Frizz fan that she will doubtless really get a chance to shine as Liz reels from the death of her beloved husband. She's already broken my heart like nine times this week. And I'm just so invested in, in Liz and what this will pretend for her character for sure. Well, our guest today is the man in question, Roger Howarth. So let's check in with him and get the scoop on Franco's death, what's ahead, and so much more. Hi, Roger. Hi, Stephanie. Oh, my goodness. How are you? Good. How are you? It's been, I don't know how many years. It's been at least one. It's been at least <laughs> one. But I feel like the last time I saw you in person might have been at The View. No, The Chew. The Chew. Oh, yeah, that was fun. Yeah, but that, that might have been it. So anyway... Nice we could not be happier that you're here today. Thank you. Thanks for having Talking me. Us. So thank you. Um, so we're going to take a little walk down Roger Howarth memory lane. Oh, boy. Okay. You ready? Sure. Okay. So you grew up right outside of New York City, and I have the sense that art and music and theater were a big part of your upbringing. So looking back, does it seem inevitable to you that you became an actor, or did you ever seriously consider a different career path? I'm still considering a different career path. <laughs> uh, we'll see how the whole acting thing works out. I, but I can say for certain that, you know, for the first 30 years of my life, I didn't know there was another career outside of acting. I didn't know anybody could do anything else. It was just kind of, uh, um, I, I don't, I didn't, uh, I don't remember making the choice to be an actor and I'm not, I'm not complaining about it. Um, but uh, yeah, I, 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 you know, my, my dad was a high school drama teacher and during the summers, um, he would direct musicals at a place called the College Light Opera Company at the Highfield Theater in Falmouth, Massachusetts. And um, so I would spend my summers, you know, at this kind of weird musical theater, they, summer stock thing where they would put up a show. Incredibly, they would do a, 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 like a, a huge production of a Gilbert and Sullivan in like four days they'd rehearse it and then perform it for seven days, then take, you know, and then do and then build sets and do it uh, completely different. It was, it was really cool. I mean, when I was like seven years old, I walked on stage in like some weird costume and, and handed a scroll to another guy and then kind of did like a weird bow. And uh, that was like the first day that I went to work and I've been kind of going to work ever since. Like, it's just what, this is what I do. And, and I love it. I love it. I still love it. I, I'm really, really grateful. Just made me, Really happy. Well, what was it like for you to be so close to New York City for this to be your chosen profession and sort of have, you know, you're halfway there, if you will, just by being in the proximity? Yeah, no, I, I uh, you know, I think that like, I, I recently read somewhere that like, 
your career is like 85% is motivated largely by, you know, your upbringing and where, you know, geography has a lot to do with that. And clear, like, I guess, yeah, I was really lucky. I, I, I went to the Manhattan School of Music. My brother went to Manhattan School of Music. My, my sister was a dancer in the, in the, you know, and a mime. And like, there was like, no, like it was a crazy weird seventies childhood. Um, and, and part of that involved going to see cool, weird Sam Shepard plays and my, my parents like covering my ears and at that La Mama and Terry Schreiber studios and like weird, you know, fourth street with the, the, the across from theater for new audience gave birth to rent in the nineties. And, you know, like all of these kind of cool, weird things that I got to be a part of when I was, I was really lucky. I'm really lucky that I got to see all that and be a part of it. Into acting, you fell, you found yourself. And uh, your first daytime experience was when you were tapped as an emergency recast for the role of Holden on As the World Turns. But John Hensley ended up being available and you never actually aired. Uh, but you did make it to the screen in 1992 in a short-term part on Guiding Light where you and Jesse L. Martin played college kids with questionable taste in sweaters who were not very nice to Cat Speaks played by Nia Long. What do you remember about your short-lived stint in Springfield, USA? Uh, that the Springfield is the setting place. That, that's, that's where Guiding Light is? Mm -hmm. Well, I remember, uh, uh, I remember when, I remember the moment when Jesse Martin meeting Jesse and just, and just, uh, on, 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 just falling in love. I just love that man. He's just so beautiful, just a beautiful person. And it was lovely to, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful. He's the godfather to both of my children. And, um, so that, you know, the, the, the end of the, the, the predominant like energy of that, um, stint on guiding light was, was, was really positive. I, I, you know, the, the, and, and the, the whole concept of that was at the time I was working with an agent named Pat house, who was like this lovely, lovely person. And she was really good friends with this other lovely person named Betty Ray. And Betty Ray was the casting director for guiding light. And just like this kind of, um, showbiz soul, like she was just, uh, and, and so that that job was literally a gift um, because Kari and I had had our first kid and we didn't have any money. And my agent called Betty Ray and said, hey, can, can you give this young client who just had a baby a couple of days work? And they, they, she was like, uh, she met me and she was like, congratulations, you're going to be Jory on Guiding Light. And I was like, that's great. And uh, I, I don't know that, I, I think I was terribly miscast I know I was terribly misguessed. Um, I don't, I don't, you know, I, I don't recall the specifics of it. I remember there was some mustard involved, like, like <laughs> the, the, the character, the last day the character worked, Jesse was playing basketball or something. And Monty Sharp, who's was like just this incredible actor was doing some weird stuff. And then I remember sitting in a, in a, in a diner set and like Nia and then this other actor, I forget her name, but they came in with like, ketchup and mustard and like sprayed it all over us and then I didn't work there anymore. I think it was Melissa Hayden for any Guiding Light listeners who played Bridget. I, I, I mean, no disrespect, I'm sorry. In fairness, it was, it was a long, it was, you know, it was a long time ago. Oh, okay. But yeah, I forgot, totally. that, that, that sounds familiar, yeah. Well, later that same year, you landed a contract on Loving as snooty frat president Kent Winslow. You worked with Michael Weatherly and Laura Wright and Rebecca Gayhart to name a few. So what stands out about your Loving experience? What I take away from the time at Loving is are two things. There's two two things that that's that kind of stick out to me in my memory. The first one is like you know my my grandmother who was incredibly important to me and has been on my mind so much these last few days um, was a piano. She was a chicken farmer and a piano teacher, and she also would go to New York City and play piano for ballet classes. And the piano was this huge part of my childhood. And I was terrible at the piano. And all I wanted to do was go play soccer. And I, I, and everybody, you know, my brother is this incredible, to this day, like my brother's like, oh, oh you know, I'm learning a, a Rachmaninoff, whatever, and I'm going to do it. And, you know, so he, he, and then my grandmother had perfect pitch. And, and so like, I'd be playing really badly as a kid. And, 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 from the, you know, three rooms away, somebody would say like, that's a B flat in the left hand. And I just closed the piano and 
it was it was terrible. The whole thing was terrible. But but the but the weird kind of broken pleaser part of me that was very strong in my twenties. I was like, oh well, I have a job now. I should go to Steinway and buy a piano. So as soon as I got the job, um, as Kent Winslow on Loving, I went to Steinway and I said, you know, I have this cool job now. Can you guys sell me this like six thousand dollar upright piano? Which is, you know, I. I the last job I'd had before at the public theater, I was making like 60 some 70 bucks a week or something like that. Before that I worked for 10 months at, at stage West in the regional theater. I was making $54 a week. I was on food stamps. I had no business going to Steinway on 57th street. And I went with my grandma. I was like, grandma, come on, let's go. And she came down and they knew her there. So like, hello, it was great. And there's a portrait in the Steinway room of her old teacher. And so I bought a Steinway piano and then, uh, like a month later, I had to walk into Hades office or I forget who the who the who the executive producer of loving was and said You can't you can't fire me. I just bought a piano. That's what came out of my mouth when they said we're letting you go I was like, but I just bought a piano <laughs> and So I had to go back to Steinway on 57th Street and like present the paperwork and go like hey man I know I just bought this piano, but you haven't delivered it yet. Can you please like can, can we just not can I, can I not buy a piano today? And they were like, yeah, I mean, I couldn't have been the first person that ever did that, but they were like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. Okay. So the second, that's one of the things that I remember the most about that period of time. The other thing that I remember about that particular period of time is actually watching what I did as an actor on loving. And, and now I can honestly, there is no part of me that is surprised that they fired me. (laughs) I'd only been out of drama school for like months and I brought a certain amount of, um, there was a spin on the ball that was genuinely unwatchable. I just, I, I just, and poor Michael, I, God bless him. He never said, Roger, what are you doing? But also, you know, Michael, why didn't you just say to me, like, why are you, why are you playing this scene? Like we're in front of 250 people and you have to hit the ba- the exit sign with your, with your, I was like, uh, yeah, I can't say enough unkind things about. But I learned a lot. For, I learned a lot. I don't know. That, 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 that's the takeaway. But yeah. Well, it's all on YouTube if you really want to like... No, no, no. It's okay. I, I, I wake up in the morning and I drink water and I do 19 different poses of sun salutation and I try and let light into my soul. I don't need to go to YouTube and watch me be awful. Like, I don't need to cut myself in that particular... Believe me, my inner critic already can imagine. Okay. How awful that is. <laughs> well, at the tail end of that same year, you like officially cornered the college kid with a bad attitude market uh, when One Life to Live tapped you to play a fraternity brother who started out nameless but was eventually given the name Todd Manning. Do you remember auditioning for I do. that role? You do? I do, totally. I remember walking into a small room in... Um, uh, there was some, you know, 66th Street uh, had, like, there was a casting office that they shared with with Alexa Fogel, who is now, uh, hands down, just the most amazing artist, casting director ever. Um, And uh, so she was, it was her office, and then we had kind of, like, One Life to Live had borrowed some space in that office, and Tori... The Celio, I, I don't want to say her number wrong because she's like so sweet. And uh, but but she and I had worked together. She was a, a stage manager at a small summer stock theater that I worked at in my t- late teens uh, called the Williamstown Theater Festival. And I spent four summers there uh, carrying spears and selling brownies at intermission in exchange for acting classes and. And I got to walk on the stage with a literally with a spear, and there were actors like Olympia Dukakis and and Austin Pendleton, and and just like these incredible. It was a playground for people that it was a it was a really cool experience. And Tori, we always said she she would dress up in black and be like, "You're on, go carry your spear out." And I did. That was you know, so we kind of knew each other. And she was the casting assistant then. Um, and she, what I remember about that audition was, I, I remember I, I walked into the audition and I, I, it didn't go terribly well in my recollection. What I, what I remember afterwards is going, is, is like Linda, Linda Godley, who eventually wound up being the executive producer all through the, the 
early nineties, uh, kind of said, well, could you, do you mind doing that again? And I was like, yeah, I, I don't know if, I don't think that's a good idea or something like that. Um, I, I gotta go. I, I think I gotta go. And I just kind of left and I went to the, to the, I was waiting for the elevator and Tori came out and said, Roger, what are you doing? I said, yeah, I gotta go. I'm late for, I don't, I don't remember I was, I was late for something, but, and, but I remember thinking like, I really do have to go. It wasn't, I wasn't trying to be unkind or rude or anything. I just had to go. And she was like, you can't, you can't leave. And I was like, yeah, I really, I really got to go. And, and I left and then I got that job. It's the only job I've ever gotten. I've auditioned 10 million times since then and not gotten the job. And I've tried to approach it like, well, maybe I'll just say I have to leave or something. That's <laughs> that's ever worked. And that, you know, you can't fake that. It was not, um, I can't believe they hired me. I can't believe it turned into what it was. Yeah, that's what I remember is Tori is Tor going like, Roger, what are you doing? Like, I like I think I think I was there because they were doing Tori a favor. <laughs> Who could have guessed? Right. So in 1993, Todd became part of a huge storyline when he and his frat brothers raped Marty Saybrook, played by Susan Haskell, and went on trial where he was defended by Nora course, played by Hillary Smith. So all three of you ultimately won daytime Emmys for your work and the story. And along the way, One Life to Live put you on contract. So when you look back on that period of time, both in terms of the work and in terms of what I imagine was a pretty steep increase in getting recognized on the street and having media attention, you know, what do you think about? Oh, uh, well, I mean, it, it was, it was, you know, it, it's hard for me to distill it to one particular experience or you know like what 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 i don't know how to encapsulate all of those hours and hours of 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 energy into you know quick stories i i I think that i think everybody that was a story that uh you dropped a pebble into that pond and all of landview was affected and i think that 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 was a really exciting thing to be a part of where you have virtually the entire cast on the, in the same story. And that, that was really exciting and also really difficult. And, and, but, but there was a sense during that time that um, the writers knew that, and this is Michael Malone and, and I think Josh was by his side and there was this, a, a, a young um, writer's assistant who used to hang out in the makeup room and swing his, like sit on the counter and swing his legs and watch uh, Josh and Sean and, and, and the, I forget the actor who played Swade and 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 Hank Gannon was it wasn't just Nora he was just and Robin Strasser inimitable Robin Strasser she she you know Ron Ron the, this writer's assistant would come down to the makeup room and watch us kind of run lines and rehearse and sort stuff out and that was Ron Carlavati. Um it was exciting you know I think I think that it it, it it's a it's a horrible story. Um, and it was, and they did not shy away from the, the visceral violence of sexual assault. We shot on a Saturday afternoon. I think we shot 13 episodes, Jill Mitwell directing. Um, they spared no, they were not sugarcoating this event. They wanted a, a guy with a black hat to be the bad guy on the soap opera. This was white hat, black hat. And, and, and the response, you know, by, by tapping into, Again, the decision that I did not make, but the people with the shoes and not sneakers, they 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 tapped into a response that was that was trauma based and visceral, and the audience just um, couldn't help but be affected by. Uh, and and Susan Haskell, you know, I, I can't say enough nice things about her. She was amazing. She was amazing, and uh, it was exciting to be a part. Of, like I said, I, I really mean that it was exciting to be a part of of a story that that involved so many different moving parts that was cool and and i really you know i was i was essentially a kid you know and, and um it was it was i just didn't i just tried to do what they told me to, to do well it had an effect that you might not have known because todd became hugely popular with the viewers in a way that you probably could never have imagined that that would be the you know end result of this storyline so what did that feel like for you to now have this fan adoration for something that your character did was pretty despicable. Yeah, it, it, it was confusing. It was a confusing time in my life. I was very young, and I and 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 I I didn't understand it because I knew what we were doing on the studio floor, and I knew that we were working hard to to make a TV show. I had not. I couldn't. I couldn't process in my 
young mind that anyone would watch the TV show. So my involvement in the television show ended as soon as as soon as somebody says cut, the actor is redundant. Like we have like we have no say in what happens after that, and 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 I just didn't concern myself with it. It was beyond my little hula hoop of 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 uh, of um like it wasn't something I could control. Mm-hmm. Or and, and I was surprised, and I didn't understand it, and I felt threatened by it, and I didn't always respond well to, you know, there were, there are definitely, I would straight up like, like a, you know, I, I've watched children, you know, drop the cookie. And then, and then an adult says like, Hey, did you, did you drop the cookie? And the kid goes like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, no. And that was my emotional uh, uh, maturity in my, my mid twenties and late twenties, you know? And, and so, so people would straight up on the train you know the the biggest focus group in the in the world is 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 the the one of the nine, which I don't think is even a train anymore. But I'd get on the train and somebody'd say like, "Hey, you, you're you're that guy from that TV show," and I would look them. I would go, "No, that that's how mature I was." I was like, "No, I'm not," because <laughs> I just didn't know what to say. I just was terrible at it. You know, the only experience that I'd had with interacting with people, given my original family and my history was being told what to say in a script. I'm one of those actors that's comfortable, you know, when, when like I, I can, I can like, even in, in this context, like, I don't know what to say to you, to you guys. Mm-hmm. You're doing a good job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think well on my feet. I don't. So, so fan interaction did not come easily to me. I mean, even yesterday I, I got a sandwich from somebody and, and at a, at, at the small market and she's she's just lovely and she's a big fan of the show and and she didn't know what to say to me I think because what came out of her mouth was you know I, I, I'm sorry you're dead uh, but now you can work on your painting now I've never painted anything in my life so I don't know what to say back so what I said was oh yeah sure thanks but it took me decades to figure out how to just say like yeah cool let her think I'm gonna go home now and paint I, I, if she thinks I'm Franco that my therapist says that's a compliment now but when 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 I was twenty something years old and somebody was saying, "Hey, you're the you're the rapist," I, in front of my children, I I got uh, defensive and 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 weird. And I know I miss. I know that I owe apologies to you know dozens, if not hundreds, of, of people that that tried to interact with me in the best with the best of intentions and were met with somebody who just was incapable of it. I'm sorry. <laughs> well. Never too late to apologize. There you go. Maybe maybe they'll hit you up on Cameo for their overdue apologies. Well, the apology goes like this. I'm sorry. <laughs> See how easy that was? <laughs> no, I'm sorry. But you have to understand. <laughs> um, well, the show uh, made Todd narratively viable, if you will, or more narratively viable in a number of different ways, including the reveal that he was the long lost brother of the most important character on the show, Victoria Lord, played by the legendary Erica Slezak. Tell us about working with Erica. Yeah, I loved working with Erica and I learned so much from her. The character of Todd would would not have, would not have succeeded at all beyond uh, whatever, the, the first part of the story without uh, showing the audience that the, that the character that was not the heart of the show, but definitely a heart of the show, and in some senses the heart of the show, um, made room in her heart for the character of Todd, that the, that the redemption story only made sense because the woman who had, had a job and uh, had, had problematic relationships and cared tremendously for her children um, accepted the character uh, uh, of Todd and could see that that there was a heart and behind all the damage, um, which is a, a story that that afforded me years of employment. So I'm you know I, I'm grateful for that. <laughs> I, the experience of working with Erica uh, is so is so lovely because of her sense of humor and her grace, and she checks her ego at the door, and she, you know Erica. Wanted to come to work, do good work, make people happy by with the work that she did, and then go home to see her, her family. And that kind of professionalism, um, you know, I, it's no re, there's no surprise there that uh, 
she's so beloved by her fans. Mm -hmm. like she, she, she always knew what she was doing. And there was a real sense of give and take with that, with her where if you threw the ball to her, she'd throw it back because she didn't, she didn't come to the floor with an agenda of, uh, you know, we're going to do this my way. Um, she was open to change and flexible and uh, just lovely. Mm -hmm. Well, you also had the chance to work with two other pretty wonderful ladies, Cassie DePaiva's Blair and Florencio Lozano's Taya. So what stands out to you about working with them and about the fictional relationships that you had with them? Well, you know, I, I, I think that um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm intensely grateful to have worked with both of them, and they're both really lovely people, and they were both very patient with me. You know, I, 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 really, I, I really think that the dysfunctional, the, the, way that those, the way that those relationships, as dysfunctional uh, as they were, worked because and there's, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about both, both Todd and Taya and Todd and, and Blair, you know, they really wanted the, the, something that they have in common is that they all, they both really wanted, everybody wanted to be together. They just couldn't figure out how to do that. And I think that that is incredibly human and requires a great uh, delicacy and attention to detail on, on both Cassie and Florencio's part to, to, to be attuned to that and to realize that that's the story. And, and um, it was great. I mean, I'm, I'm really, I'm really, I'm really proud of what we, what we did in both, in both, although they were very different. I think that, you know, I think that there was a, there was in the, in the, in the arc of the character of Todd, by the time we got to Todd and Taya, I think there was a sense of humor about the, the, the whole canvas. I don't know. I don't remember who, who was, who was, in charge at that time, but I do, I, I do remember it being um, certainly very dark at times, but there was a lightness to, I remember just goofy stuff about Taya asking Todd to use a fork and knife in the, in the, in the restaurant and things like that. Those, that, that's, those smaller things uh, gave a texture to, to that relationship that was light. And, and I just remember thinking like, Oh, well, this is, this is a different way to go. We'll see what happens here. And I, I'm really happy that we got to do that. Cause that, 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 turned into uh, Todd having dissociative identity disorder and, you know, there, there is, you know, in a dress on an airplane. I mean, just like you, you can't get there without all of those relationships being the way they wrote them. I, I think I've kind of lost my way as an answer, but, but that's kind of. No, I, no. I we're following, we're with you. I promise. Yeah. Um, well, Stephanie and I were, were both Dawson's Creek devotees. So we must hear about your experience playing Greg Hudson, the English professor of Katie Holmes's Joey. The Dawson's Creek thing was super fun for me. I really, really liked that. I felt um, comfortable. It was a very welcome set, very easygoing, really smart people running that show. Um, and they were there. Like it was, it was, it was cool. Um, and, and North Carolina was beautiful. I'd never seen that part of the world. And that was exciting for me. I, I think I, I took my son to like he was 12 and went surfing Wrightsville beach or something. Um, and Katie Holmes was really, really kind and, and gentle and generous and sweet to me. And um, I, I remember, I don't remember a whole lot of it. I remember that they asked, I remember thinking, God, I'm talking so fast, but that's kind of what they, they kind of needed. Some, <laughs> they needed a lot of dialogue and a little bit of time. <laughs> um, and I remember meeting Oliver Hudson and, and he was this, really sweet kid and we went and had a beer together and he was like yeah I'm starting this acting career and I and I and I said something like well you know what I know some people in New York if you want me to introduce you to like I have a great agent I'm sure she'd love to to meet you you're really sweet and I'm sure you're you know, very handsome I'm sure you're gonna have a great career and you know if you need a little bit of if you need a little help you know give me a call and then he said well yeah that's fine it's really my sister's thing and I was like well you should have your sister call me because I can help her too if you want and he goes yeah, I'm, I'm going to stop you right now. My mom's Colby Juan. My dad's Kurt Russell, and you're very nice, but I don't need your help. <laughs> Although it says a lot about him that he never said it in the first place, and you. Oh, he was like the nicest guy. He just yeah. wanted to talk about fishing and boats, okay. and 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 uh, yeah, he he and he. Uh, yeah, I, 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 we would sit and, and talk and, and I think smoke cigarettes and he would talk about 
boar hunting with his dad. I, <laughs> I, I, I don't, it, believe me, if, if he walked by me on the street right now, he would not know, like we don't know each other. But at, at, in, in that moment, I, I was like, wow, this kid's really sweet. He's a nice person. That says a lot. Well, in 2003, there were gasps across the daytime landscape when you exited Landview and went over to World Turns to play Paul Ryan. So you, you were there all the way through to its final episode in 2010. So what are the highlights of your years in Oakdale? Yeah, I don't know. It was, it was a difficult time in my life. So I, 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 kind of, I kind of remember trying to keep my head above water. I was, it, I didn't, I, I'm not really sure what motivated looking back. Um, I'm not entirely, well, uh, yeah, I don't know. It was a, there was a change. There was a change in leadership at the very top of ABC. And, and um, then producer Gary Tomlin had, had kind of, uh, kind of given me an indication that the character of Todd was probably going to take a turn that I wouldn't be super comfortable being around given what I had said publicly about the romanticization of a, of a, of a serial rapist. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it just seemed like, uh, and then and Chris Galvin took me out to, to, to coffee and, and he said, do you want to come work? And, and I just said, yes. And I don't, I, I didn't, it was not I, looking back on it. I don't know if it was a, a good decision or a bad decision. It was just, it was probably not the best decision that I've made in my life, but that's what happened. Um, and, uh, what do we, yeah, I remember some really lovely people. I remember working with lovely people and enjoying the people that I worked with. Um, I remember being, uh, very sad at the loss of Benjamin Hendrickson, who looking back now had more of an influence on my life than I, than I recognized while it was happening, but he was a really big hearted, troubled man. And, and, uh, that's something that, that kind of sticks with me now. Um, you know, now spending as much, I get to see Maura West at the job that I work at now. And, um, I, you know, I, I think in, in Brooklyn is where I realized that her and Michael Park were really onto something. That was really special. You know, I don't know. Kathleen Widows was very, very sweet to me. Um, I think, you know, I, th- I thought about her the other day because she told some crazy story about a poet that she dated in the 70s and this kind of naughty, like she was pretty amazing. Um, yeah, I don't know. And I remember thinking, wow, this is, this is Brooklyn. And I remember riding my bicycle to work through Ditmas and seeing a house that, I could afford for sale and now looking back saying, why didn't I buy that house? (laughs) Um, When One Life, uh, sorry, when As The World Turns went off the air, you ended up returning to One Life in 2011 for its final months. Uh, So what was that like? You know, you'd come and gone before, but this was a more considerable gap of time. So what was it like to reunite with uh the cast you hadn't worked with in a good spell of time and also to find the character again that you hadn't played in some years specifically that was um it was really nice for me to get back into that building and in specifically to have the chance to work with cassie again having left the place that you know i think i think it's there's very much an idea like i see this in people's lives that when you when you begin the relationship, um, that's kind of the the highest where you are at emotionally. When you begin a relationship, is probably the, the the point. You know, the game is locked on some level. That you, that the way I behaved when I was twenty something and began the role of Todd, um, and my own immaturity, my own inabilities, and my own my 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 own kind of dysfunctional broken weird thing that I that I was in my in my 20s to, to the, the game was kind of locked there's a certain assumption that when I was dealing with people in the building on 66th street seven you know across in the castle that I was kind of locked into that mode of behaving around the people that I worked with because that's when we wrote the contract and it was kind of there was an expectation and then I kind of went away for a bunch of years and 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 when I came back, it was nice to to meet the people with a certain with a with a with a different vulnerability and a different and a different level of uh, you know maturity, frankly. And to say to to Cassie, like, oh, you know, I was a little fearful and egoic when when we were working together before I went away, and I wasn't always respectful of your your process, and 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 I'm really sorry. And Cassie DePaiva, bless her heart, said, that's okay. 
I love you anyway, or something, you know, something equally generous and sweet. And, and so to have that opportunity to, to repair and move on, I'm very grateful to, because I think Cassie's amazing and I think she did a terrific job. And, and it was never her fault that I didn't want to play Todd Manning on, on a TV show. And so to, to, to be given the opportunity to, to apologize, I'm really grateful for that. You know, and, 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 and what we did before in those, I remember specifically that period of time, these people from this new thing called the internet showed up and they were going to put, uh, they were going to take one life to live and all my children, they're going to put it on, on the internet. It's going to be amazing. And, uh, they bought everything. They bought the costumes and the sets. And I, and I remember, you know, Jeff Kowatnitz and, and Frank Rich coming onto the set. And what I remember about that day is it was awesome. And Frank Valentini walked across, Jill Miltwell was directing, and there was a rocking chair, and Jill had set up this weird shot with a, underneath the rocking chair so that the rocking chair would go in and out of the frame and then widen out, and Todd had been shot or stabbed or burned or whatever, and he was in the rocking chair. And the two people that were going to come kind of nurse him back to health were for Lorenzo Lozano and Cassie DePaiva, and we were just having a great time as actors playing this material. And we really thought, I was like, I remember thinking in that moment, oh, this is great. The show's in a really healthy place. All of the stories were working really well. Uh, everybody seemed light and enthusiastic. And, you know, and it was, it was literally in a different building because the building, the castle building on 66th Street kind of had a heaviness to it. And there was a, it was an element of the, uh, you know, listen, Phil and Clint and, and Bob, the, the Buchanan boys, you know, John Leprino playing chord. That was a, I remember walking into that building when I first got there and thinking like, these guys are way more um, masculine than I am. And there's like, like this kind of like vibe in the place of, of, of uh, drinking and cowboying and, and, and that wasn't, that wasn't in the new building. And it was a different environment. And it seemed, it seemed like, I seemed very hopeful. And then, and then, uh, and then it all just kind of didn't work out that way. Mm -hmm. Well, in 2012, you and a few other Landview players made the move to GH. So I was way into seeing those characters now in Port Charles and interacting with new people. What was it like for you getting to create the Port Charles version of Todd, if you will? I was super happy at the, first of all, to have the chance to work. I'm always, I, I've been working in my career and not working and working is better. I have a preference for working. Um, and so I was happy and, and it was, a, it was exciting. I, I remember, uh, I remember a day in the courtroom where I, working with Maurice and I don't remember who had the gun because my because it's unimportant, but there was either Todd was going to be Todd. No, but there was, and I was like, wow, this, this actor is here to, he's not messing around on this. He, he, you know, there's, there's, um, there's guys who are the guy and, and Maurice was the guy. And I was like, Oh, this is, this is a, this is a heavy, this is a, an environment where people are, are, are encouraged to create. And um, I was, I, I was thrilled. I was really happy. I remember it being a really good day at work. <laughs> Um, well, uh, the following year, uh, the internet people came back and tried to make a go of doing uh, the internet thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, you were part of the streaming reboot that they put together. I did not want to be, but I was. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I, I was put in a position where if I wanted to continue to work on, in, in, at the, on the general hospital set that I had to go to Connecticut and, uh, I'm super appreciative and it's not like I wasn't compensated for that. They gave me some money. I, from what I understand, they didn't pay everybody. Um, but yeah, that was a weird situation. I don't wear shoes. I wear sneakers. I don't know what the people with shoes were thinking, but they were trying to sort some stuff out. Had it happened like today, it could have been super duper successful. Listen, I, you know, I, 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 Jeff Kowatnitz was nothing but kind and generous and sweet to me and supportive and, and super enthusiastic. I mean, the guy just, he, 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 there's just not uh yeah, it it was it ahead of its yeah clearly it was ahead of its time. I mean, they were you're you're you're, you're you can't yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know, not something I understand. <laughs> um, well, you know, it's an interesting like footnote, I guess, in the career of Roger Howard that uh, through you know no fault of your own, uh, 
there were there were legal wranglings having to do with the rights to the character that you played, and so you could no longer play your character on General Hospital. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, kind of like the situation you're in now, uh, you you had a return that was shrouded in mystery as to who you would be playing. Right. Uh, but uh, in that day and in that instance, it turned out to be Franco. Um, so, you know, what was that chapter of your career like, uh, returning to the show as a different character? I was excited and I thought it was going to be a lot of fun. And it was. It really was. And it was... It was um, there was a sense of improvisation and quick thinking. I don't think, I, I think that they had um, three actors and they needed three characters. And I don't, don't know the thinking process for how they landed on it. I, I feel fortunate that they got as many years out of Franco as they did. I want to let you know that I saw a lot of tweets from people who were like, Roger's not on social media, so I hope that someone tells him that Franco was trending nationally on Twitter in the United States and Canada the day that the death aired. So on their behalf, I wanted to pass that along and let you know that your on-screen death trended in two different countries. That uh, is not that common for uh, a daytime show to do. Uh, what's your reaction to that? It's not something I understand. I, I, um, <laughs> I, I think I'm supposed to be really pleased about that, so I'm really pleased about that. <laughs> I did. We, uh, you know, I, I, I think that, um, I, yeah. I don't. There's nothing that says that those tweets were were. It doesn't. It, we don't know. We don't know how those tweets break down. That could be that. <laughs> that you know, there was a, a bunch of Canadians that are really pleased that that Frank is not on television anymore. <laughs> But you know, I think I think uh, it's nice to know that people are 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 paying some kind of attention to what we do. We, I hope that I hope we've made some people smile and be happy and enjoy their day a little better. Well, maybe not this week because there are certainly a lot of Frizz fans in mourning. Um, so let's talk about that relationship and what did you enjoy about working with Becky Herbst and bringing the Liz and Franco love story to life? Everything that I said about working with Erica could also be said about working with Becky. She totally gets it. She's totally professional, super well-prepared and disciplined and kind and generous to everyone that she works with. And she is not the heart of the show because there's 24 hearts in the show. But you, here, is a, here is a character who uh, works really hard and is underappreciated at her job and can't seem to get it right with the, any of the men in her life but the audience is still rooting for for Jason and Elizabeth and Lucky and Elizabeth and and hopefully for a while Franco and Elizabeth and the only commonality to all that soap opera success is the the actor that played the character of Elizabeth and 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 you know the the the, the fact that there's a her deep uh commitment to her children is a remarkable it's just the, it's it's such a good it's such a good character it's a, you know and and uh, and you couldn't again and, and and it's not unlike the the kind of redemption story of Todd that you couldn't have had a Franco on that show you know the fact that Elizabeth loved Franco allowed the audience to care a little bit about this guy you know it's hard to be a reformed you know I'm sorry I was a serial killer that's hard that's hard, that's a hard line to say. And but to have a, a character a character played by an actor who is who is so capable, um, you know, she makes really difficult things look really easy. And uh, there's a, there's also you know I mean look she also I have to say she has this like this plastic Tupperware like it's Tupperware and it's got like little magic in it. I don't know what she says like little. It's not it's not. Um, Fairy dust, or is it? It's no, it's not. Uh, uh, it's what's the? It's not glitter because glitter's like awful. But she's got, yeah, she's got like a little bit of a little bit of. She can she can make Elizabeth sparkle. She sprinkles that stuff and then she puts it back in the Tupperware container. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I, I uh, it was it was a pleasure. I hope that you know. I, I I said this tomorrow before I think we were talking, and I don't think that every story is for for every. Uh, fan, and I know as an actor, I've given up on pleasing everybody a long time ago. I, I think that it's what we can try and do is take a small portion and 
of the audience and have that small portion really like something. And I think that that, that can be said of, of certainly the, the, the Franco and Elizabeth fans are so wonderful and supportive. And, and on some level, like I understand the, the detractors of the, of the couple because I, I recognize that I, I, they are so enamored of the, the pairing that Elizabeth had with Jason. Elizabeth had so it's still motivated by support and affection for, for this character who is a heart or the heart of, of the show. So yeah, I got, I'm lucky I got to dance with her for as long as I did. Um, you know, I think, and I think it was a good story. I think that those two people really, you know, brought out the best in one another and really cared for one another. And I also liked that when Jean began the story, the time and attention that they took to, to the details, um, she, she really respected the, the process of, of asking an audience to care about two people. Mm-hmm. So I was really, I'm really lucky. That's, you know, like you asking me, my, the predominant, feeling that I have about the work that we did is I'm proud of it. I'm thankful we got to make some people laugh, hopefully smile a little bit. And I'm really, uh, did I say I'm proud of it? Was that number one? I already forgot. Number one, yeah. Oh, so grateful. Yeah. Proud and grateful. The four. <laughs> um, well, you know, I think ultimately uh, Franco crafted uh, a lot of relationships that fans of the character really enjoyed watching him in scenes with, you know, Franco Ava, Franco Kevin, Franco uh, Cameron, Franco Obrecht, Franco Scott, you know, uh, what did you enjoy, I guess, uh, yourself about getting to play out some of those dynamics? In terms of the other, you know, the Nina Franco stuff, I I think that there was, you know, I think that, that as human beings, we learn like in in like like a ratchet or at least, at least me personally like I will learn something and then forget it and then learn a little bit more and then forget it and then learn you know and 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 I've been trying to learn how to be an actor for like I said earlier when we were talking my entire like seven years old and I'm 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 in my early 50s it took me a long time to realize that it's it is a tennis match not not a tennis match that makes it sound competitive it's 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 it's, it's it, but it's a sense of like you know, acting, reacting, talking and listening. I, 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 I know intellectually that we can't talk and listen at the same time. I used to do this thing with my kids where I'd say, all right, I'm going to say, you know, choose three things that you think are totally true. And when I say go, you say those three things. And then I'd say go. And then I would say the three things and I'd say, uh, uh, apples can be green or red, some, some birds can fly, but not all birds can fly, and Spider-Man has, can make a web. And, and she, both of my kids, he and she, like, they would say their three things, and they'd say, okay, well, what were the three things that I said? Or I'll tell you now the three things that you said. And, and it's not possible. Like, the, the proof of it was, like, you can't talk and listen at the same time. If, if I'm, I think if I asked my kids about it now, they'd be like, yeah, my dad just said some weird stuff about birds. And, and I'd be like, and part of it was me thinking, like, oh, I'm, that was really clever. Like, aren't I clever? I'm so clever. And I think that in the Franco-Nina relationship, there was a little bit of me thinking I was ever so clever and a little bit better than, than, you know, this kind of generational thing. I come from these long line of leftist intellectuals who, you know, they think they're a little better than everybody else. And I think that there was, there was an element of my acting that suffered from a look at me, look at me kind of thing. And the writing kind of dovetailed with that because Ron was capable of having people run around an insane asylum. And it became this kind of, uh, I was, I, I, I wasn't listening. I was the kind of horrible person at a party who wants everyone to think that they're listening and, and got good at pretending to be a person who listens. But I wasn't listening. And there was a sense, there was a sense of, of timing in this, in this last part of my career playing Franco. So lucky where I kind of realized that if there's two people in the scene, I'm, I'm, I'm only responsible for half of what goes on. And when I look back at that time in the early 90s, what I apologized to Cassie for was going up to the floor with an agenda. This is how we should do things. We've got to do things. And, and it, 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 I, did, I wasn't, I wasn't I, at that time, I wasn't capable of doing the work that I feel like I'm now capable of because because you can't you're not we're not supposed to do this alone and you can to some level in this in the working environment that i have there are still like you can 
you know it's true, and, and, and this is the thing that I shouldn't say, but if you walk up to that floor, yes, you have to be prepared, but there has to be a level of flexibility. And if you go up there thinking, I'm going to do this thing, the audience knows. The audience seems to know that we failed them by trying to push our own agenda through, and we have disrespected the story, the directors, the other actors. And, and, and I, I think that this is probably not the answer to your question, but so now I think about like, oh yeah, do I think about Nina and, and Franco? Yeah, it was fun. And Michelle is amazing and totally surprising. And I'm really happy I got a chance to, to work with her. And she's, uh, you know, she, 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 is a, she is a very compassionate, lovely person. The story was, I want children, I don't want children. And it's amazing to me that that story is about two characters that went their separate ways because they really weren't listening to one another. And I, I look back and coincidentally as an actor, I was not as capable of showing up as, as somebody who would catch the ball and throw it back. And I, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful f to have worked with Kathleen and Ken and Becky and, and William and Jason and Jake, because that community, we were all kind of playing together. And it was really, I'm very fortunate. Well, it's great that you have the perspective now that you're able to look back on it because it wasn't so far in the past. Um, but we did see you have to play out Franco's death this week. So what was that like for you? Sticky. The blood is, the yeah. blood was like, uh, I don't know what it was, particularly sticky bottle of blood they had. Maybe, maybe they hadn't used it in a while and they couldn't <laughs> get any more because of COVID. But the, you know, usually it's like chocolate sauce and this was like kind of a, a peanut buttery kind of thick pile. I think that they really wanted to organize this above shot of a pool forming and the actual technology of it involved a bag and somebody forcing air through a tube that would then kind of, but, but then as soon as I laid, you know, and, and on a practical level, as soon as I was laying down on the bag, everything just kind of came out. And so we had to, it was, it was a, a little bit of a, um, something that would have gone better if we'd been working on a set that didn't have to do 64 scenes in, in eight hours. Maybe Grey's Anatomy left their blood behind. <laughs> changed the name. Yeah, maybe. So at this point, Roger, there's, there's, some, there's some things we know and some things we don't know. We know you're staying with the show. We don't know what exactly that means. Um, yeah. Fans have speculated uh, everything from Franco being alive to you coming back as Todd to you playing someone new altogether. You know, what can you say about what you know? I truly do not know anything. Um, I, I just don't know anything. I, I'm, I'm down for whatever. I trust the people I, I work for. I love them and they'll figure it out. And I'm comfortable being uncomfortable. I'm, I, yeah, I don't know the answers and that's okay with me to not know the answers. Um, I, um, I'm all right with not knowing. Well, we also know that you're on a temporary storyline dictated break from the show and that you're doing something really cool to raise money for charity with your time off. So tell us what you're doing and how you came up with the idea. I, uh, what I'm doing is I joined Cameo and if you go to Cameo and you try and book Roger Howard, then Feeding America gets the proceeds and, um, it's, it, uh, I, I'm just so grateful I get to do it. I don't know. It just, I, I, you asked me how I got the idea. I don't, I'm not entirely certain at this, at this point, but, um, I'm, it's making me really happy and, um, people are being beautifully generous and responding and, um, it's a great opportunity for me to have fun and, 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 um, somehow, uh, you know, in a fun way, say thank you and interact with some people who've been really supportive and, you know, feeding America, uh, I don't know the number, but they feed on, they feed a lot of people and it's really cool. It's really cool. So, so if I book a cameo, for your support, by the way, I, I, you know, I, since, since Mara did her thing, the phone, I have to figure, I, I've joked about it, but like the phone is literally ringing off the hook. So that's so awesome. That's yeah, amazing. Great. People have been amazing. Thank you so much. So you're donating the money that would go to you, but to feeding America. All, all the money goes to feedingamerica.org. You know, and they and they what they say is that for every dollar that we get, they can feed uh, ten people. Mm -hmm. Because part of what they do is they organize. They've got they've got donations coming from people who have excess food, 
and some financial contributions, and they're able to mix it. So they get a they get a lot out of a dollar. A dollar, if a dollar can feed ten people in the United States or anywhere in the world in 2021, then we should yeah find a dollar. And people have been so generous. Um, I'm going to be a busy boy for for a while. It's really it's really nice. That's great. It's a great. Yeah, you told me that uh, you might continue doing it even after you go back to General Hospital because you might get some castmates to, to yeah. join in on the fun. Yeah, the concept is that I would, I, I don't know if I, you know, I haven't asked anybody's permission, but I know that there are people that, that, uh, that, that I work with that are, that are like-minded and if, and if they would like to contribute their time, then, then somebody would, would theoretically be able to go to Cameo and I know William does it, and if you know, I'm perfectly comfortable sitting down with William, and we do a, a, a Franco Cameron special for a couple of days. I don't know, and so that's the idea. I don't, I don't, I don't know if that's practical or if anybody will want to do it. But that's kind of something that I that I'm interested in pursuing. We'll see what happens. Cool. Well, based on the response, they clearly want you to do it. So we'll see. Before we let you go, Roger, is there anything else that you would like to say to the fans who have supported you throughout your career in this genre from guiding light to the present? Yeah, just thank you. Thank you so much. You know, I, I, we're not supposed to go through this life alone. We're supposed to lift one another up, support one another. There's a lot of affection and a lot of support. And I'm just so, I'm, I'm so grateful. I'm a lucky guy. I love what I do. And I, I hope that, uh, I can continue to do it. I hope it makes people smile. I'm just really grateful. Well, thank you. And thanks so much for all your time today. I definitely look forward to seeing what's next. And um, hopefully we will know that soon. Okay. All right. Well, have a great day, Roger. Yeah, you too. Have a great day. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to Roger Howarth for being our guest. If you like this podcast, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to pick up a new issue on sale now and come back next week for another podcast. Podcast.